Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. Thank you, Ridge. It is a good day to be here. Uh, I know I see lots of familiar faces, several new faces, some that we haven't seen in a while. It's a good day to be here. If you were wondering about the large rainbow on the stage, uh, Rainbow Express, our Mother's Day Out program, just had their graduation this week, and so they left us a nice decoration. And also, I think a good reminder that um, even if you're only present here at the building a couple of hours a week, that is not the only time that this building gets utilized. Uh, We have a a robust uh, Mother's Day Out program. Crystal Dawson does a wonderful job of directing that. I think I should point out again that we were voted by the city best of the best uh, this last year, so that's not an empty claim I'm making about what a good job she does. But a good reminder of that. I wanted to pause just a minute also to point out something else we're excited about. Um, Don and Kim Humphrey have been here with us on and off over the years. They've had a good relationship, especially with our prison ministry over the years. Uh, Don is the author of the uh, book, The Meanest Man in Texas. You may remember a couple of years ago that was adapted into a film uh, for which he was the screenwriter. But Don and Kim are now here in Corpus Christi wishing to place membership at King's Crossing. So if I could have you guys stand up real quick just so everybody knows who you are. Yeah, Don and Kim, welcome. Thank you. Well, it is a good day to be here. Uh, This is, of course, Memorial Day weekend, and uh, I think we have to be, on days like this, especially grateful uh, to those who are not with us. You know, we have Veterans Day where it's appropriate to thank a veteran for their service, but the point of Memorial Day is that there are many people who have served and suffered and died uh, who are no longer here for us to thank for their service. And that's the purpose of Memorial Day, to re- remember especially the fallen and the sacrifices they've made. I think it's also appropriate to, to pause and to uh, appreciate those families who now forever have had an empty seat at their table, an empty place at the family gatherings because of a sacrifice not only uh, that a family member has made, but that they continue to make in what they've given up uh, for the safety and um, benefit of our country. So we're very grateful to them. Last week, I began a new study with you of Abraham. I called this study Late Bloomer, and I think I'm justified in calling Abraham a late bloomer because the real significance of his life didn't begin until he was at least 75 years old, as we talked about. And so uh, we spoke about the importance of at some point in your life deciding you're going to start stepping out, doing the things that you're capable of. And what I decided to do for this week, uh, right out of the gate, one of the first stories we have about Abraham, I'll just be honest with you, it's a story I don't like. Uh, So there's a story about Abraham. We're going to get into it and talk about it, but I really don't care for this story. I don't like what he did. Not especially excited to preach about it. And then there's another episode where later on he does almost exactly the same thing as he does in this story. So just, again, being really candid with you, I don't like either of these stories, and so I'm going to do both of them at the same time, okay? But I do think there's some application from both of them um, that, that come across in some similar ways. So let me start with story number one, and I'll kind of summarize for us. The first story is right out of the gate. 
Genesis 12, we have this amazing promise from God to Abraham about all the things God is going to do for him and through him and how God will bless him. And it's easy to get this this starry-eyed picture of what Abraham's life must have been like based on that promise. Right out of the gate, he's met with severe famine. And so the famine gets so bad that they end up going down to Egypt. He and his family, they go down to Egypt And uh, this is where they end up having to spend some time because it just wasn't safe. It wasn't possible to feed your family if you lived elsewhere. Egypt had a unique position in that they were one of the only places in the region who didn't depend so much on rainfall as they did on the water from the Nile River. So they had a very lush valley and everything they were able to have vegetation from, even if it wasn't raining much in the area. So they went down to Egypt, and as they approached Egypt, Abram and his wife Sarai had a very um, significant conversation. I'm going to read it for you. It says in Genesis 12 and verse 11, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And she does clearly uh, agree to do this because it is what she did. And um, Abraham's suspicions about the Egyptians taking her were totally correct. They did that. And so uh, upon their arrival in Egypt, one of the first things that gets back to Pharaoh is word about this beautiful woman in their midst. And of course, he's more than happy to take her off of Abraham's hands. And we understand that he takes her as uh, probably part of his harem. You know, these, these ancient kings would accumulate large numbers of wives and concubines. And so she goes there into the palace. Meanwhile, it says that Pharaoh treated Abram exceptionally well because of her. So because of this connection, Abram had mentioned he has given sheep, cattle, donkeys, camels, and slaves. So he's getting all kinds of material prosperity. His tribe is growing because of this situation with Sarai being taken there into the royal palace. So again, I just want to note, Abram is profiting from allowing his wife to be taken captive by this foreign king. That's why I don't like this story very much, right? It's not a comfortable thing to deal with. Abram is at least 65, or Abram is 75 at least at this point. This means we know she would have been at least 65 years old. I don't know exactly how people age in the ancient world. There's some questions we have about, you know, just perceptions of beauty and whatnot. Uh, It would be the case that part of what would make her so attractive is that in Abraham's group, the people that he's leading, the people that he has power over, she is conspicuously the most powerful female. And so something about her level of status, that she is the lady above all other ladies calling the shots that would make her appealing to anyone who was a ruler of the territory. It was also the case that if you were traveling with a group of people and you showed up as kind of immigrants to a place that wasn't your home where you're going to be a a drain on the resources, if we're honest, that's a lot of people to feed and take care of. It was the case that the king of greater power would expect some sort of tribute from the ruler of lesser power as a way of acknowledging that, you know, I'm over you right now. So for him to take the most powerful woman from Abraham's party was a way of kind of guaranteeing some level of peace between the two, but also acknowledging the status of Pharaoh uh, in this situation. So 
there's some reasons why we can expect these kinds of behaviors might have happened, but again, I confess, I still don't like them. I'm, I'm fairly uncomfortable with some of the things that take place here. And one thing I do notice, though, is that God was a lot less willing to give up Sarai than Abraham was. God intervenes in this situation. It says in Genesis 12 and verse 17, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. So Abram was scheming. He profited materially. His wife was released. No thanks to him. He didn't do anything to help that along. But at this point, Abraham is able to leave Egypt, not necessarily with more respect, but certainly with more possessions. Now, you would like to think that after he'd seen the way that God intervened in this story, that he would never do that again. I can't imagine what it was like with Abram and Sarai talking to each other after that entire episode. But much later in Abram's life, there is a similar scenario, and he takes a very similar course of action. This story takes place immediately after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abram has an encounter with a powerful man in a region named Abimelech. Um, Abraham took his people and went to live in a place called the Negev. Negev is the Hebrew word that means south. So this is the southern part of, the, of Israel. And so he goes to live in the Negev, and there's a place called Gerar where Abimelech is the king. And just like before, Abram used that same line and says, well, she's just my sister. Abimelech takes a good look at her and says, she's beautiful, I'll take her. And he did exactly that. And so Sarai is taken into his household. And then God, once again, is not content for Abram to give Sarai over to someone else. God intervenes once again. And this time he appears to Abimelech in a dream, and he says, this woman you've taken is another man's wife. You are as good as dead. Abimelech responds to God and said, but, I, but I'm innocent. He told me it was his sister. Didn't she say that he was her brother? I'm innocent in all this. I, have, I haven't touched her. I didn't do anything wrong. My conscience and my hands are clean. And God said, I know you have a clear conscience. I know you didn't know what was going on, and that's part of why I have kept you from sinning. A nice move on God's part there. I have intervened to keep you from sinning, and I didn't let you touch her. And so Abimelech never had opportunity to try and consummate that marriage. But interestingly, at this point, God says to him, return Abraham's wife to him because he is a prophet. God points that out. Abraham is a prophet. He will pray for you and you will live. But if you don't return her, you are going to die. That's the way that God lays it out. So Abimelech brings Sarah back to Abraham and kind of hits him up with this assortment of questions as you can understand. What did I ever do to you to deserve this? Why have you done something like this? Why did you say those things to me? Why would you do that? Abraham replies, well, I said to myself, you know, I thought to myself, here in this region, this is a godless place. There's no fear of the Lord in this place, and they're going to end up killing 
because of my wife. And he goes on to explain, again, this was more common practice in the ancient world, but she is, they, they share a father, but they don't share a mother. So they are actually related to each other. So he says it's not completely, completely a fib to say that she's my sister, but just the same, um, Abimelech brings her back and says in verse 16, to Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Looking at Abimelech's actions, he's really trying to take the high road. So it would have been one thing to say, I found this woman displeasing for some reason and just give her back. And the implication in that might be that she was impure when he got her. You know, that was one of the causes for divorce in the ancient world. If she was found not to be a virgin, he could just kind of give her back and say, no, she, she hadn't protected her purity. But what Abimelech is doing is paying him such a large sum of money here. It's like a bride price. It's like he's giving it all back, and he's, he's, he's completely vindicating her and treating her as if she's honorable. So the way in which Abimelech gives her back and then gives so much to Abraham on her behalf in front of everyone is a way of saying, I'm completely innocent and she is completely innocent. So not only does he preserve his own honor, he's also preserving Sarah's honor so that she can still be upright. And again, it's fascinating to me the way that God has intervened to make sure that Sarah would be okay. Isn't it interesting that in this situation, Abimelech has been upright and Abraham is the one who was sitting and crooked in his actions. I wasn't doing this on purpose, but what a strange occasion, Memorial Day, when we, sat, we, we, we remember and appreciate and celebrate the lives of those who were fallen, who would give their lives on behalf of others, what a day to preach a sermon about a guy who would readily give his wife over to, over to a foreign ruler to save his own neck, right? <laughs> Abraham is moving here in the opposite direction. Here, you go with that guy, whatever it is, make sure nothing bad happens to me. What, a, what, an, interesting, what an interesting thing he's done. He didn't just do that once. But twice, God had to swoop in to save them. God would save her life. God would save her honor. God would save Abraham's life, save the entire household. So what do you do with stories like this? If nothing else, it's helpful to me, again, to look at someone that we would uphold as really the father of faith, right? Abraham's shadow looms very large in Scripture. He's a significant figure, a significant example of faith in God, but isn't it nice to know that even Abraham really made some bad decisions sometimes and was subject to all the fears and anxiety that we are, that he thought his neck was on the line and he made a panic move, just like many of us might would make some sort of move of panic if we felt like our lives were threatened. One way that this story can be read that would probably not be the common way we would approach it, if you think about being an Israelite after your kingdom was taken away and you're living in captivity under Babylon or the Persians, 
This story for them might have functioned as a sort of humor to encourage them, where they would look at a man like Abraham, who they would call really at this point in time, before his encounter with Egypt especially, they'd say, here is a resourceless man standing before the most powerful person in this region, and the only thing Abraham's got in his hand is a promise from God that that Pharaoh has no interest in honoring or even paying attention to. They might would look at this story and say, it's kind of like plucking a, a hair off of Hitler's mustache. Like he managed to get one over on the big guy, even though he was, he was powerless. He managed to pull one over on him and he came out profiting. It's possible that they might have read the story in some light like that. There's also in these stories some pretty powerful foreshadowing, especially as it pertains to the situation in Egypt. I don't know if you noticed this or thought about this, but when we think about Abraham and we think about his descendants and all that they would become, this is not the only time that Abraham's family would come to Egypt during a famine or during danger, right? It happens again, doesn't it? This wasn't the only time that God would send plagues and afflictions on the Egyptian people who were exercising power over Abraham's family. This is a foreshadowing of what would happen once again. This isn't the only time that Abraham's family would leave the presence of this empire, bringing much wealth along with them as they went. There's some fascinating foreshadowing of what would later happen, certainly in the time of Israelite slavery, and then once again, some of these actions are echoed in Jesus' own life, or not long after he was born, they had to, to flee to Egypt, and it's out of Egypt, again, that God calls his son. So there's some interesting details of this story that are certainly shocking or difficult for our 21st century sensibilities, but we see that God protected Abraham's family. He even caused them to prosper as they left. Reflecting on these two different troublesome stories, there is one looming question that I think God was asking that no one else in the story was asking, and the question is, what about God's promise? What about God's promise? In the encounter in Egypt, he had just given it. The situation with Abimelech, this is some time later. But just the same, God is remembering his promise just as clearly as if he had given it the day before. What about God's promises? We're challenged to understand that even in times when we are faithless, God is still faithful. There's just no way around it, in my opinion, that when you see what Abraham does in these two situations, he has this promise from God that God is going to grow his household into this nation that he couldn't even be able to count. God is going to bless him in all these ways. He's going to protect him. He's going to go with him. When Abram gives his wife over to these foreign rulers, this is functionally as good as him giving up on the promise. I mean, if he's got no wife, if he has no access to his wife, he's therefore not going to be producing any heirs. So functionally speaking, I don't know what Abram would tell you he was thinking in his head, but with his actions, it sure looks like he's forgetting about passing on, giving up on the promise of God. In reflecting on these stories, the great uh, church reformer Martin Luther said, Abraham let the word get out of his sight. I thought that was a good way to phrase that. He let the word get out of his sight. Do we ever do the same thing where we know what God has told us, we know what God has promised us, but somehow we let the situations in the world create a sort of fog that we live in 
and we lose sight of the Word of God. We lose sight of the promises of God. Do we forget about those things? Just like us, Abraham needed opportunities to grow in his trust for God, to grow in his willingness to trust God, even when it was difficult. I wish these two stories were different kinds of stories. I wish they were stories where even under great threat, Abram refused to make his wife be vulnerable, and we could see some amazing story of deliverance where God swooped in and provided a way to save and preserve them all, as I really believe he would have. Or I would even settle for, Abraham did that awful thing the first time, and then second round, he got braver, and he stood up for her, and he wouldn't just give her over, but both times, both times, he did the same thing, and all we have to work with is the good news that God still loved them and intervened, and God still remembered his promises. I don't know if you picked up on this detail either, but there's a real deep irony in the situation with Abimelech. Do you remember why Abraham said he lied to Abimelech? Because he said, I know that in this place there is no fear of God. And if you start reading the details of the story, isn't it pretty clear Abimelech has a relationship with God and very much fears the Lord? When God shows up and speaks to him as a dream, it's not like he's talking to a stranger. This is a God-fearing person who clearly probably would not have taken the actions that Abraham had been so worried about. He just went ahead and started trying to scheme his way into safety when instead he wasn't even really in harm's way, it seems, from looking at what Abimelech was like. Abram was operating out of some level of fear in his life rather than faith in these situations, and he caused unnecessary pain both in Pharaoh's household and in Abimelech's household. Um, Regardless of the outcomes, with his actions, couldn't we say that Abraham, did he really put his trust in God's promise to protect him and give him a future? I would say it looks like the answer is no. In those situations, was he trusting in God Was he believing the promise? It doesn't look like it. But encouragingly, did God keep his promise anyway? The answer is a resounding yes. Abraham might have been giving up on it, but God wasn't. It wasn't Abram's scheming that saved him. It was God's faithfulness that saved him. Lest we ourselves forget the promise, I want to read it to us again from Genesis 12 and verse 2. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In this language of blessing and cursing being tied to God's chosen people, God's chosen family, believing now that we, the church, are in fact the new Israel, God's chosen family. It's no longer a physical nation of Israel that is God's chosen people. It is the church in all places that function now as the Israel of God. Jesus says in Matthew 18, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
in context, I think what that verse is supposed to mean is that as, as Jesus is talking to his followers, he's encouraging all of us that as you read Scripture and as you apply Scripture and you reach understandings of the will of God, some of the decisions that you make do have a lasting impact. The evaluations you make, God stamps and affirms and, and empowers. And so it's a way of affirming us that we have the ability to bind or to loose things based on the word and the promises of God. God, and God will establish our decisions. They echo into eternity. But it also challenges us to understand that in our relationship to God's promises, there must be trust. Think about this. Pertaining to God's promises, looking at Abraham's situation as an example, our world is blessed by our faithfulness, but it's harmed by our avoidance. The world is blessed when we're faithful to the promises of God. The world is harmed when we avoid the promises of God. Abraham's actions, one commentator used the word shabby. I think that's a good word for them. Abraham did some pretty shabby things. It wasn't just the hardness of the situation or the risk involved. It's that Abraham knew God's word. Abraham knew God's will, but he chose to shrink back from living into the promises of God. And when he shrank back from the promise, what did it lead to? It led to curse, both in Pharaoh's household and later in Abimelech's family. There's the plagues in Egypt. There's infertility on Abimelech's family. And in our situation, when Jesus has sent us into all the world to proclaim the gospel, when Jesus has called on us to be like salt that, that does so many good things, it enriches, it adds flavor, it preserves what's best, to be like salt and to be like light that clarifies, that helps, that's encouraging, that gives people something to aspire to. If we as Christians do what he did and we shrink back from the promises of God, do we not harm the world around us? I mean, you may decide to pull back on what you're supposed to do. Sin isn't going to wait for anybody. When we pull back, Satan moves forward. If we shrink back from upholding the promises of God, if we shrink back from trying to live faithfully into those promises, the truth isn't proclaimed. Better alternatives for the world aren't imagined or acted upon Pain is met with more pain. Violence is met with more violence. Dishonesty becomes the official language of the land. When we pull back and are not faithful to God's promises the way that God is faithful to his promises. The world feels the pain of the curse when we shrink back and fail to be what we could have been with God's help, when we could have been brave and courageous. I'm also encouraged, though, that in this story, especially with Abimelech, this is one of the first examples in Scripture we find of what you would call intercessory prayer. That's a big word that just means you're praying on behalf of another person. When you say, I'll pray for you, you're offering to give someone intercessory prayer. So that's the big word, and that's what that means. But you notice that God says, despite everything shabby about what Abraham did, despite his shortcomings, this is still a person who has entered into a covenant with God, and it is through Abraham's prayers that Abimelech still finds healing. It has never been dependent on us deserving the chance to ask God to help us. It's never depended on our own perfect character to move the heart or the actions of God. 
God says, no, we've entered a covenant. When I've been baptized into Christ, I've been buried with him through baptism into his death, raised up into new life, and even though I don't always perfectly fulfill my part of the deal, God is still faithful to his promises. He still calls on us to pray to him, to seek his will, and even if we haven't done the things we should be doing, to say that today can be a new day, and just like Abraham, maybe at 75 years old is the first time I start really doing the kinds of things I've always intended to do, but just the same, when we step forward with God, he is still there to empower us and to honor this covenant that we share together. Paul says, against the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. People who live faithfully by the gospel bless the world around them. I believe that these passages place on all of us a call for clarity and precision, that we should be people who live with clarity rather than taking the hard things in our life and kind of covering them with a fog. You know, because this is difficult for me, because I'm kind of nervous about it, I'll just be ambiguous about it and not really be something. I, you know, this, this mentality, I want to be just enough of a Christian to get saved, but not enough of a Christian that anyone really notices that I am. We can't be people who live in the fog. We bless the world when we live openly with integrity and sincerity, and in fact, a life of faithfulness to God, it blesses the world through a positive example, the inspiration of convictions and clarity, and in the midst of everything else being so foggy, knowing there is something in the world that you can put your foot on that's solid ground, that in Christ we can build our life on something. We can become more like what it is that God has called us to be. We can put our faith in everything that he promised, that it will be true, that he will go with us to the end of the age, that Jesus is sending us, but he hasn't abandoned us, that we have the helper, the Holy Spirit who goes with us and is in us and helps us in all things. So again, I, I thank you for working with me this morning through these uh, difficult stories. Those are two that I do have a hard time with. I'll readily uh, have confessed to you here this morning. But just the same, as you think about your life, I hope we all do feel that call to faithfulness to God's promises, that we keep them in sight, that we don't forget them, that we try to live into them with courage and conviction and clarity. Maybe this morning you're a person who really needs to step forth and, and make a clear commitment somehow to God in your life. Uh, maybe you're a person who would like to talk to us, maybe have us pray over you. You might decide today is the day you want to be baptized. We're happy to help you with any of the things you'd like to do. I'd also mention, uh, I think we'll have here on the screen, but also on the back of your bulletin, if you've got any other sort of request, whether it's a, a prayer request, you're interested in membership, you've just got some question about something, use the camera app on your phone, scan that, go to that link, and uh, just tell us how we can help you. It's an easy way to stay in contact with us. We'd be glad uh, to follow up with you as soon as we can. But whatever your needs are, if you'd like to come forward and talk to us, uh, this is a time you can do that while together we stand and sing.